You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Good morning, Redeemer. We're going to continue on in our study, the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. My name is Pastor Aaron. It's a joy to open God's Word with you today. Last week we looked at Matthew 6, 1 through 4, and we said that Jesus at this point in the Beatitudes, like a good and consummate shepherd, is helping his people remain balanced. Everything up until this point in Matthew 5, uh, most notably in Matthew 5, 16, where Jesus says, let your light shine before men, and that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And a lot of that is Jesus pushing us out pushing us out to let your light shine, to do those things that glorify the Lord in the sight of men, that they might give him honor and praise. And now, to keep us biblically or theologically balanced as kingdom citizens, again, we can't say it enough, all of the Sermon on the Mount is the way of the kingdom, not a meritorious way into the kingdom. He's speaking to Christians. And so he says, go and do those things, but then also there is the the other way to err, or as we quoted from Luther, the other side of the saddle out of which we can fall, and that is into religious hypocrisy. And so Jesus would spare us of that. He is the good shepherd. And so he comes in Matthew 5 and says, go and do. I'm with you. Go and live out what God has done in. And now in Matthew 6, he says, and be careful of the other error, which is doing things in my name for your own glory rather than mine. And so he is indeed the good shepherd, and he is indeed laboring to keep his kingdom citizens balanced as they live out the gospel. And that's what we see here, the three main areas of piety in the minds of a a Jewish audience at the time of Jesus speaking these words. The three areas of personal piety were giving alms, prayer, and fasting. Those are the three areas here in Matthew 6 where Christ will turn his attention to say, as those who have been saved by grace through faith, who know that their sins are forgiven, those that are in my kingdom, when it comes to these areas of personal piety, do them this way. Not as the hypocrites do, to be seen by men or try to earn God's favor, but do them this way, from the heart. We've said time and time again that When it comes to instructing his kingdom citizens, King Jesus is infinitely more concerned with motive than he is with method. And that's where we find ourselves today when he addresses us in regard to prayer. You know, when I first became a pastor, uh, I was given this this book. I wanted to, I don't normally bring props into the pulpit, but I was given this little book because I was was writing in my sermon. I'm going to try to describe it. I'm like, well, instead of describing, I'll just show them. This is the book. And you would think for a a rookie pastor that prudence would say, give him a book on leadership skills, give him a book on preaching methodologies, on church growth methodologies, and all these different ways of doing ministry. And that's what I thought this would be about. And this little book, which has long since lost its dust cover and had stains on it, I wondered, why why did my grandmother, who just turned 85 yesterday, her name is Ollie May. She's Southern. She carries a two-shot pistol in her purse. I'm not kidding. She says, I will pray for you to meet Jesus or I will send you to him. 
It's a two-shot 38 Derringer. She, <laughs> some of you still think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. She gave me this book. It was copyrighted. This is its fourth edition, and this was copyrighted in 1963, and you can see writing on the inside, and it was given to her by a traveling evangelist in 1963, who she then gave it to my dad, who shortly after he came to Christ, or Christ came to him, he gave it to me. And I thought, this must be another one of those methodology books, because they know I'm a preacher now. And I looked and I opened it up, and I realized the title was Preacher and Prayer. I thought, this must be a massive oversight. Why do, why do I need a book on prayer? What does prayer, I mean, everybody knows to pray, but what, what, what is really the, the centrality of prayer that is so important that you would feel the need to give me a book on it as I'm beginning to cut my teeth on the operation of preaching God's Word? It wasn't long as I began to interact with what I now know as a classic from Ian Bounds, who lived in the 1800s, and I believe he died in 1913. This was the fourth edition of it. And as I began to interact with this book, I quickly realized this is one of many paragraphs from this book that arrested me. And I quickly became aware of the centrality of prayer when it comes to ministering in the name of Jesus, whether behind a pulpit or in the street. Quote, the preacher must be preeminently a man of prayer. His heart must graduate in the school of prayer. In the school of prayer only can the heart learn to preach. No learning can make up for a failure to pray. No earnestness, no diligence, no study, no gifts will supply its lack. Talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men, end quote. I realized in an embryonic fashion, and it has only grown since then, that if I want to speak to men for God, the wisest and most humbling and joy-giving thing I can do is to retreat and talk to men or talk to God about men in the prayer closet. Ian Bounds knew that in order to sever the root of pride, to kill the thing that will rob us of joy in service in the name of Jesus, which is self-glorification, to kill that root, Ian Bounds knew that Christians must get alone with God before they get around other people. Like last Sunday's teaching on giving, Jesus is more concerned with motive than he is with method when it comes to praying. The main point of my text is this, that all elusive, what's this all about? The main point of today's passage is this, as we deal with prayer as kingdom citizens, feasting on God's presence in private prayer helps starve the root of religious hypocrisy. Feasting on God's presence in private prayer helps starve the root of religious hypocrisy. That's where Jesus is taking us today in Matthew 6, 5 through 8. Prayer is crucial. Private prayer is crucial. Number one, because it exposes the root. 
It exposes the root. Look at verse 5 in Matthew 6, 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And when you pray... And again, as he said in the previous passage last Sunday, when you give to the needy, when you pray, our Lord knows and assumes very rightly that one of the first impulses of a regenerate heart, just like one of the first impulses of a newborn baby is to cry for milk, a newborn Christian might not know what propitiation means or how to define justification, but they know I must pray, I must talk to my Father. I must, something in me is doing what Romans 8 said it would do. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit, and we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus just assumes that those whom he has called into his kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, though they may be weak in faith, they know I must pray. I think it is very, very telling that our Lord just assumes. He says, and when you pray... Do it this way. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Prayer is a gift. Prayer is a joy, but sin can sour it. And our Lord would spare us from that. And that's why he says, when you pray, because you're gonna, you must not be like the hypocrites. What do they do? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And I circled that word love. That's the problem. You see throughout Scripture, people pray, whether it's Daniel or Jesus or the disciples or Paul, the method of prayer is not the issue. People pray standing. People pray kneeling. People pray sitting. People pray with their eyes open and their hands up, saying, oh, God, to bow their head. Method's not the issue. The issue is right there in verse 5. For the hypocrites love. They find joy. They find pleasure, not in God. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That's the problem. A little bit of cultural context from Dr. Daniel Doriani says this, quote, by custom, Pious Jews living in Jerusalem were supposed to stop, drop, and pray when a trumpet blew in the temple. That's that play on words of stop, drop, and roll. I grew up in the 80s. We heard that all the time. You would think that more kids were bursting into flames. He says, pious Jews were called to stop, drop, and pray when a trumpet blew in the temple for the daily afternoon service and sacrifice. The hypocrite was pleased to find himself in a public place at that time so that all would see him fall to his knees and pray. Perhaps the hypocrite even arranged to be in a public place at that hour. Oh, I got to go shopping today, so I'll make sure I'm out when they blow the trumpet at the temple so that everybody can see me do the thing. Perhaps the hypocrite prayed sincerely at first, and then someone praised his well-phrased prayer so that he gained a reputation for devotion. And in time, he hoped to be seen or heard praying. Jesus says that if we pray to gain the approval of men, we will gain it and nothing more. 
And this is from Doriani. If a prayer is blind to God, God is blind to that prayer. Beloved, our King loves us too much. He loves his glory and our joy too much to let us prostitute the joy of prayer for the love of the praise of men, the pride of hypocrisy. And that's why he knows that what he is calling us to, number one, will expose the root. No one sees you in your prayer closet. No one's going to come up and say, wow, what a great prayer, what a great sermon. What I'm doing right now is a dangerous thing because people can come up and say something about public ministry. No one saw me this morning. The only thing I'm going to get from that is God. And our Savior would have it that way because that's where joy is found. It exposes the root. And number two, praise God, private prayer kills it. Private prayer exposes the root of religious hypocrisy and it kills the root. That's why Jesus says in verse six, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Now, again, we've already established, is there a place for public prayer? Yeah, we, we did nothing. Pastor Jason did nothing wrong. Pastor Harrison, he led us in a public prayer. That is good and fitting. There's a place for that. There's a place to be heard praying in your small group and with your families and maybe even at work. And there's, you can sit down, you can stand up. I mean, there's no reason to have your conscience bound today, right? You could, you could pray while you're driving, just don't close your eyes. But that's not what Jesus is getting at, is he? He's not as concerned with method as he is with motive. So that's why Jesus says in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees in secret. What is Jesus getting at? What is he doing? I submit to you that what he's doing here, because we know on the one hand, like, well, I know that this isn't the only way to pray. So what is he doing? I submit to you that if you go back to Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Pastor Redbird preached a wonderful message of exhortation from that text. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. What, what did he mean? That was, that was hyperbolic language when the master was saying, don't, don't give your joy to these things. There's not lasting joy there. If, if sin is causing you to stumble, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, that you might enjoy God and not enjoy the temporal things of this world and go to hell with a whole body. Sometimes sin takes extreme measures, right? That's exactly what he's doing here. He's not saying pluck out your eye or cut off your hand because the motive is to be seen by men and to love the praise of men for my religious service. Didn't I pray well? Don't, aren't I a good little saint? Jesus says in order to kill that, one way to do it is to go into your room, get away from everybody, close the door, and pray to your Father. you want to be seen by men or do you want to be seen by God? 
is go and pray in your room where your father sees in secret. Private prayer. This is something that the old Puritans knew something about. They called it being shut up to God. You read those Puritans. Oh, we love reading the Puritans because they're so heavy. You know, John Owen and all the different ones, you know. And boy, we love Puritan theology, but do we want Puritan piety? Because the Puritans were men of big brains, but you don't have to read much of the Puritans to know they spent a lot of time in private prayer, shut up unto God, ministering to the Lord in the secret place of prayer. The Puritans didn't just have big brains, they had callous knees. Private prayer helps us fight for joy because it offers an undistracting, vulnerable space where we can cry and groan and be silent and plead and praise and wrestle and sing and feast on God. What's fasting all about? Because God hates food? No. It's extreme measures to say, thank you, thank you for fellowship. Thank you for the gathered church community. Thank you for food. Thank you for money. Thank you for sustenance. But it's all secondary. Your primary. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And private prayer is a way to get rid of all the distractions and the, the pride of religious service publicly and to be shut up unto God and to feast on him. And that's why he says here in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your father who is in secret. Is he transcendent and high? Is he the God of Isaiah 6 where we tremble and say he is holy? Yes. And as the incarnation made very clear, he is imminent and relational, and your father sees in secret. If he knows when a bird falls off a branch, he knows when you go into the inner chamber and fall on your knees and say, Father, he hears you. The God that creates universes, ex nihilo, hears and gives an ear to his children when they say, Daddy, what more motivation do we need to put our phones down and go pray? Jesus says this, your father who sees in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And I had to linger over that. I'm like, Lord, what do you mean reward you? You use that word again and again in the Beatitudes. Is that he will reward you with eternal life at the end of your life and on into eternity? Well, of course, yes. But the context is praying now, meeting with God now, getting away from the prying eyes of men and being alone with your Father now. What do, what do you mean that you get alone with God and he rewards you in that place? Does that mean he gives you a million dollars? If you pray hard enough, he'll give you, he'll give you that million dollars, right? That's what, he, that's what he means. No. That would be cheating you, beloved. As C.S. Lewis, our desires are often too low. When he says, close your door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you, it is the presence of God himself that is the reward. 
And at this point in my sermon, I, I halted. And I thought, Lord, it would, it would be ironic, tragically ironic, if I'm talking about getting alone with you because you're worth it and being alone with God in prayer and then talk about myself. So I'm aware of that, but at the same time, 2 Corinthians 1 says, with the comfort we receive from God, we comfort others, right? So I just, I want to exhort you as a brother in Christ with what I'm about to say. I'm just trying to put flesh on verse 6. What does that look like? What do you mean? 2012, I had been to ministry part-time for three years, full-time for two. So five years of ministry, go, 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 raising babies, paying bills, foolishly just going and doing everything 60-plus hours a week. Everything I did was public, praying public, leading worship public, preaching public, teaching public, everything. And I, I felt myself, it was getting rote. You know what I mean? Where I, I, could, I could pray without even really thinking. There's, there's a danger in familiarity, isn't there? Especially when it comes to the things of God. B.B. Warfield warned young pastors, be careful because you live around holy things all the time. You may find yourself like a priest in the tabernacle rearranging the table of showbread without a thought where the holy becomes profane because I'm just used to it. I found myself in that desert place. But I had read enough Puritans, and I had read the Valley of Vision, and moreover, I read this. And so I told the church secretary, I said, I'm not taking any calls. I'm not picking up my phone unless someone really needs me, and you're not going to see me in the office. And I put on worship music, and I went in the sanctuary, and I committed. I said, Lord, you said if I meet you, you'll meet me. And I, I don't need money. I don't need a car. I don't care. I'm just dry, and I'm tired. I just need you. Will you do for me what you did for those men of old? And I stayed there all morning. And I just prayed over it. I could, I could see it in my mind. It was in the corner, just like a kid. I'm like, I don't know what else to do. But I can't minister out of a dearth and dust. I don't need to speak in tongues. I don't need anything. I just need you. You said if I close the door, you'll reward me. And I was reading Daniel 10 where Daniel set his face to seek the Lord. <laughs> and I read those words, and it killed me. Where the angel of the Lord comes to Daniel, falls on his face, and he puts his hand on him, and he says, man greatly loved. And the gospel exploded in my mind. And I knew it in my head that in Christ I'm loved, but in that moment my father rewarded me with a heartfelt reality that this sinner, this blasphemer, and this fornicator was loved by God. And I found it very easy to pray for an hour because I was just there in the presence of God. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you, and the reward is himself. 
in that moment, a million dollars would have been trivial compared to knowing he is mine and I am his and Christ is all. There's no formula, but there is a charge. Put your phone down. Go back to the old paths. Go back and hit your knees and seek your father and by his grace, he'll show up. It exposes the root. It kills the root. And praise God, number three, it, re it replants the root. It replants it. Prayer changes. Look at verse seven. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. There was a time in my life where I was very, very much like the pagans of Acts 17. We all were. I didn't know Jesus. I knew of Him. I was, as the theologians refer to man, homo religiosus, man the religious. We are incurably religious. I went to Mongolia in 2016, and what did I find? 1% Christian worshipers of something. We are incurably religious. When Paul goes to the Oropagus in Acts 17, he says, men of Athens, I see you got a ton of altars here. You've even hedged your bets, and you have an altar to the unknown God. I perceive you are very religious. That's us. What were they doing? I pray to the God of war. I give him the honor he wants, and he gives me victory. I pray to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. I, I give her the homage she requests, and she gives me the girl. And I, I pray to this God. It's quid pro quo. I do the religious thing to get what I want. That was all of us before the gospel came. It was all pray to just have this quid pro quo thing. I'll do the religious thing to get what I want. That's what he means when he says, don't pray like the Gentiles. He doesn't mean don't, re sometimes you repeat yourself because you're just broken, right? It's not the method, it's the motive. The word here is badalagao, to babble on, not Babylon, to babble continually. Or maybe Babylon. You get a picture of this if you go to 1 Kings, is it 1 Kings 18? Yes. The prophets of Baal, nice Christian men. What do they do? They raved on all days and, and cut themselves with swords, constantly crying out for their God to show up. We're doing the thing. You show up and vindicate us. That's how this works. And what does the prophet of God say? He says, would you please shut up? Put water on the altar three times and I'll show you who is God. This is the idea when Jesus says, don't be like the pagans. It's not about quid pro quo. It's not about babbling on in prayer just to get something from God. He's called you unto himself to have him. And that's why I think, I was just trying to get the logical connection with verse 8. Don't do that because your father knows what you need before you even ask him. You, you don't have to go in and try to manipulate the Lord. You can just go into your prayer closet and pray and be humble and say, Father, and tell him what you need. 
but don't forget to start by saying, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, that you already know what's best, and what's best is your glory, and that frees me up just to enjoy your presence. Yeah, I need bread, I need some stuff, but mainly I need you. You see the difference between the pagan methodology and the saved motive? People say Christianity is all about a relationship with God. You have no idea how theologically dense that statement can be. It indeed is. The gospel, when we know that our sins are forgiven and that we are in right standing with the God of the universe because of the blood of his son by faith in him alone, it severs the root of pride and replants it with a desire to see and savor Christ. And the prayer closet is a wonderful and sometimes extreme measure to take to get that joy. Ian Bounds, this guy. Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. You know, Charles Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers, but I would argue that that is only the case because he was the Prince of Prayers. Spurgeon often attributed the success of his ministry in London in the mid and late 1800s to the fact that he and his people sought the Lord's face in prayer. This is the words of Spurgeon, a prayerful church is a powerful church. My challenge to you, Redeemer, my family, my friends, my sisters and brothers in Christ, as is the challenge to myself, is to return to your prayer closet. Return to your prayer closet. There is a spiritual battle raging in our day, and the best place to fight is in secret prayer. Christ's soldiers retreat to private prayer before they advance in battle. We, there is a gospel to preach and the nations to reach and worldviews to take down with truth. We must advance, and yet, paradoxically, the best place to start is by retreating, to get alone with God, to get our souls happy in God, to meet with our Father who rewards in secret. So here are my closing commendations. They don't all start with the same letter. I couldn't come up with anything pithy because I... I spent myself by, by the time I got here in my notes. So here's what you need to do. Schedule a block of time. You have to plan for these things. I believe it was Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, who said, the devil will keep me busy rearranging a window blind rather than pray. The devil doesn't need you to go out and send your life away. He just needs to distract you. So I encourage you to fight back schedule a time to get alone with the Lord and pray. It won't just happen. Find a quiet place. I have five kids. I get it. Find a quiet place. Get aggressive. If you're going to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye to fight sin of lust, we're going to fight the pride and the man-pleasing and the joy-sapping 
pride that comes with that. We've got to kill that. Find a quiet place. Number three, and I've learned this the hard way, so I, get, I commend it to you. Only take your Bible. Like, oh, I'm going to take that devotional book. Oh, I'm going to take my phone. I'm going to take, I'm going to take all these resources. Just take your Bible and go pray. Schedule a block of time, find a quiet place, only take your Bible. And this I totally stole from D.A. Carson, who probably stole it from someone else. The only people that have anything new to say are heretics. Some of you just got that. The last one is pray until you've prayed. You know what I mean. Pray until you've prayed. Pray until it moves beyond the superficial and the sick list. Pray until that joy of just knowing he is mine and I am his wells up in your heart. It's where the gospel is tasty. It's where you cry, Abba, Father. Press in. Redeemer, as we seek to be a going church, may we first be a praying church. I close as we began. Talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still.